Well, if, uh, if you got your email, or hopefully you got your email and you got your notes, tonight we're doing uh, the second of the sacraments that we, you know, last week we talked about water baptism, a good class on that, and uh, the second sacrament that is recognized or ordinance, if you prefer that term, that is recognized by virtually all Christian branches and denominations is Holy Communion. Or if you're from the South, the Lord's Supper. That's how I was taught it growing up. We were told, you know, we were told we were taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, but the, uh, the theological term for it is Communion. And uh, tonight we're going to talk about this, uh, probably the most uh, well-known, uh, maybe next to the cross, the well-known, well-known symbol of Christian faith is the bread and the wine, or the juice, depending on your persuasion. And the sacrament of Holy Communion is the continuing sign and symbol of our faith. From the very beginning, even before the day of Pentecost, uh, like water baptism, this uh, sacrament was uh, part of the life of the very first followers of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into it too deeply, I do want to point out that many Christians differ on some of the aspects of this sacrament. They differ on the nature of the sacrament. So if you were brought up, say, in a Catholic home, Catholic faith, you were probably brought up to believe that the elements are transformed miraculously into the literal body of Christ when they are blessed by a priest. So I've never taken Catholic Mass, but I've certainly seen it in and read it how it's described, and you know when the priest does his uh, his uh, blessing of the cup and blessing of the mass, the uh, Christians there believe that there's an, a miraculous transubstantiation of the substances uh, into the body of Christ. Now others believe uh, that Christ is present in a spiritual sense. So rather than saying that they're, uh, that the bread and the wine literally become flesh and blood, they believe that Christ spiritually uh, is represented, the person of Christ is spiritually represented by the elements. And then there's others. Uh, on the more uh, farther down the Protestant ladder you go, that simply take the elements as symbols being symbolic of the faith that we have in Christ. And you can parse it down, you can, you can delineate it down and, and make it, you know, uh, where minor variations on these three ideas are present in all Christian denominations. But those are the basic differences. Uh, the you go towards Catholicism, the more literal the sacrament becomes. And uh, we Pentecostals, we tend to fall more with the Protestant views 
of either a spiritual presence or merely a symbolic presence. Uh, so I, I don't know that it's something that we really need uh, to uh, use as a point of division, uh, but certainly it's important to understand that when a person comes to the Lord's table, they have an idea in their own mind of what uh, that supper represents and what it what it means to them. Christians also differ on the benefit that is present in the sacrament, or what is received. Uh, again, some believe that the elements themselves, once they have been blessed, once they have been transformed, become a means of grace. They actually have the power to remit sin and to unite us with the body of Jesus Christ. Others believe that these elements are tokens of faith and that it is the faith that is exercised when one partakes of the sacrament that conveys the blessings or benefits. And, and others still, uh, you know, don't believe there's any tangible benefit, but they certainly think it's a means of strengthening one's understanding of the gospel or strengthening one's understanding of the Christian faith. And then the third of the differences is on how often that different Christians partake of the sacrament. Uh, again, you have that spectrum from the Catholic daily mass, where they partake of it every day, uh, to the more Lutheran and sort of Anglican approaches sometimes, which can be more on a weekly basis. And then, of course, in some traditions, including the one I was raised in, you only did it the week before <laughs> You only took it the night, uh, either the Wednesday or Thursday night before Good Friday. Um, and I think it's important to understand that the scriptures themselves do not prescribe how often Jesus said, as often as you do this. But he didn't say, do it every day. He didn't say, do it every week. He didn't say, do it once a year. But he did say, as when you do it, do it for this reason. And so I think we can show pretty accurately from the days of the earliest Christians that at a minimum, the early, early church, uh, you know, from the, day, from the time of Pentecost to the, the death of the last apostle, that group, at least at a minimum, uh, partook of it at least once a week. It was a, a central part of their weekly worship service. So what is Holy Communion? There are three terms that you might hear uh, used in referring to it. Uh, most of you have probably heard, of the, heard the phrase, the Last Supper. I think there's a very famous painting. I want to say, I want to say Da Vinci, but if it's Michelangelo, don't sue me. But <laughs> there's a very famous painting of the Last Supper uh, you've probably seen a replica of it or a copy of it on somebody's wall or in some church or some some fellowship hall might have a uh, a copy of the painting up there. But it's it's uh, very um, famous. You'd, you'd recognize it if you saw it. 
the other term is used that are the other terms that are used is the Lord's Supper, and of course, what most people refer to it as is Holy Communion. Why do what do these three terms mean? Well, the Last Supper specifically refers to the original event on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. So if you want to be really technical about it, there was only one Last Supper. But that Last Supper then became the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was used to emphasize that this sacrament was specifically instituted and ordained by Jesus himself. So this was not just some tradition or or thing that the apostles thought of, hey, this would be a cool way to remember uh, you know, the night that Jesus was, was betrayed and went, and went to the cross. But Jesus himself, as we read soon, instituted the observance of this supper. So they took the name the Lord's Supper. I think there's one scripture, Paul, I think, in 1 Corinthians 10, or 11, somewhere about there, calls it the Lord's Table, which is the same, the same idea. And then you have the term Holy Communion. That's what most of us called it, or most Christians call it around the world today. And that emphasizes the communal nature of the sacrament in uniting us with Christ and with one another. So let's look at those three terms. Starting with the Last Supper. You can read about the Last Supper in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I'm going to read Matthew's version, but you will find that all three versions are very, very similar in their description of this Last Supper of Jesus Christ with his disciples. So let me set the table. It's, uh, it's Passover. Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. You know the story about sending Peter and John to find the man uh, with the colt and the donkeys, uh, with the donkey and the donkey's colt tied, and telling the Lord has need of them. And they come into the city, the triumphant entry into the city that, that last week of Jesus' life. While they were in the city, they were uh, staying at, at a place that would soon to become to be called the Upper Room. Uh, the upper room of a home of one of Jesus' followers. There's a Christian tradition that says it was the house of John Mark or John Mark's mother. But that is a tradition that comes from outside the scriptures, so we can't you know, assign any scriptural authority to it. But on the night of the Passover, Matthew 26, 26 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, so 
If you know your Bible, you know that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. Sin meaning with, optic meaning view. They have the similar view, the same view. They tell basically the same story of Jesus Christ. And they all agree that on the last night of Jesus' earthly life, he celebrated a final Passover meal, a last supper, with his disciples. Now, the Passover meal, if you're not aware of it, if you're not up on your Jewish traditions, uh, it comes from Exodus chapter 12. You remember the story of Moses and the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and God sent Moses to deliver them, and they gave those ten plagues, and nothing uh, was able to move the heart of the Pharaoh. So the very last plague, the very last judgment, was the angel of death passing through the land of Egypt to kill the firstborn son of every household. And so uh, God told Moses for to command all the Hebrews to gather together in their homes and eat a final meal, their last supper in Egypt, their final meal, that by the time uh, the dinner was over, they would be delivered. Now, if you read that Exodus chapter 12, you read that there were three elements present in that meal. They were to roast a lamb as a substitute sacrifice for the firstborn son of the house. They were to bake unleavened bread, signifying the urgency and the expediency. They were not to wait for the bread to rise, but were to simply bake it in an unleavened stand so they could move quickly. And they were to eat bitter herbs with meal, something very tart, uh, something very strong, as a reminder of their suffering as slaves in Egypt. So you put those three together, the lamb, the unleavened bread, and bitter herbs, and you have a picture of Passover. That's what the Passover was representing. The lamb that they were going to eat, they were to take the blood of that lamb, and you remember the story, they were told to use the blood to mark the entrance of their homes, to put a, 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 a mark of blood on each of the posts to the door and across the lintel of the door. And that was to mark the home as a home of uh, the Hebrews or a home of ones who were going to be delivered so that the angel of death would pass over that house and spare the occupants inside. So that's where we get the term Passover. Now that tradition goes back, you know, we just read about Jesus celebrated it in Matthew, but that tradition, that, that event, was over a thousand years before that. You know, we're talking 12, 13, 1400 years. And the Jews had kept that celebration as a memorial, as a sacrifice, as a feast to remember their salvation, their deliverance from Egypt. And so during Jesus' last Passover on earth, he, like Moses, commanded them to eat the unleavened bread as a symbol of his body and to drink the cup of wine as a symbol of his blood. 
In other words, he was representing himself as the Passover fulfilled. That as the Passover at the time of Moses delivered God's people from physical bondage, Jesus had now come to institute a new Passover event in which people would be delivered from death and from their sins. And in doing this, you know, Jesus certainly presents himself as that Passover lamb, the lamb without spot and without blemish, and the one who's giving his life to secure the salvation of his people. So in, 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 in understanding this, if we're going to understand um, the meaning of what we celebrate today, we do need to see that connection to the Passover. I know it's popular today in many churches to kind of go back and celebrate some of the old Jewish customs. You probably can find some churches these days that actually have a full Passover meal. I don't really, I don't really have a problem with it. I have a problem with it if if they teach it as a necessary element but you know just to do it as a way of saying hey this is the what this is what gave birth to the lord's supper i i don't really see that as as too big of a deal uh, but certainly on this night the jewish passover was transformed the old meaning which was tied to the old covenant to the covenant with moses became obsolete and Jesus says very specifically here, this is the beginning of a new covenant. So no longer do we keep the old Passover, now we keep the new one, the one that celebrates Jesus Christ as our salvation and our deliverance. So at this time, Jesus instituted this new covenant Passover, this new covenant supper. He made a very interesting remark. He said that he himself, would not partake of it again until we were all together in the kingdom of God. So he puts a prophetic element to it. So in the Passover, we're not only looking back to what Christ did for us on the cross, but we're also looking forward to our ultimate salvation and our ultimate deliverance when Jesus Christ returns and brings us into the kingdom of God. All right, so we know that after the supper was ended, Jesus and his disciples went to the Mount of Olives. We know the story of Jesus' time there in the Garden of Gethsemane, praying. And then at some point during that early morning hours of the next day, Judas comes with the soldiers and betrays Christ and he actually fulfills that Passover story. He goes to the cross, he spills his blood, and he delivers his people. So, how did the church commemorate that event? If we move forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll read the most comprehensive explanation of what the Passover or what the Lord's Supper represents. <coughs> So here Paul is writing, 
in First Corinthians 11:23, and he says, "For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, will be guilty of body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, for this reason Many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. All right, so there's a lot to unpack in Paul's uh, description of the Christian communion service. Kind of sounds like a party, doesn't it? People, people coming in and kind of uh, being a little uh, greedy, a little... A little um, pushy and wanting to get to the table and and uh, so he he's he wants us to understand how serious and solemn and important the communion service actually is so the first thing he does is he describes it as a means of remembrance and proclamation this is how we remember and this is how we proclaim this is how we keep the cross of Christ always before our minds. This is what keeps us from taking our salvation for granted. When we come together and we see the cost, the price that was paid for us to be part of the kingdom of God and part of the body of Christ, it certainly should humble us. And it should make us very much aware of our own... um, sinful uh, nature and our own sinful habits and our own sinful character uh, that needs to be transformed and that needs to be, uh, we need to be delivered from by the Lord. So when we look at it as a reminder of his death, we're also to look at it as a reminder of his return, right? The Christ who died is the Christ who rose again and is the Christ who will return. And by taking the body and blood of the Lord, 
we are acting out our faith that not only do we believe that we have been delivered from sin's past, but we also are believing that when the Lord's return, we will be transformed as He is. That we will be like Him. We will be like His body is now. And we will be like His blood is now. Full of eternal life. So you have that past, present, and future tense all combined together in the Lord's Supper. Um, we also see how central this was to the act to the worship of the of the early church in the life of the early church. Um, this was done when the church came together and members were expected to examine themselves. They were expected to judge themselves to so as they would not be counted as partaking in it unworthily or or disrespectfully is probably a better way to describe that. That they were to give the uh, the communion the proper reverence and the proper respect that it was due. To partake casually or greedily or without discernment of the true meaning of the Lord's Supper is a cause for judgment. Now, there's a lot of sort of debate over what Paul is talking about here. Um, he seems to be suggesting, and maybe we can get some comments on this, but he seems to be suggesting that uh, the supper itself, the communion itself, has uh, the potential when taken in the proper faith, taken with the proper reverence, uh, taken uh, by someone who has has come to it humbly and come to it repentantly and and come to it with a, with a, with a deep appreciation for Christ's sacrifice, that it has the potential to heal, to strengthen, to uh, perhaps uh, deliver someone from a particular situation or circumstance. And that failure to do so might be the reason why some uh, remained in a weakened condition or a sick condition or why some even had passed away. Now, I want to be very clear. Paul's not saying if you, if you come in, or at least I don't understand Paul to be saying, if you come in and you're rude and you're pushy, and you take a bite of the communion wafer, you're going to fall over dead. I don't, I don't think that's what he has in mind. I think what he's trying to do is say that this is part of our continuing walk, our continuing relationship, our continuing faith, and that, and that by following these, uh, these ordinances, by keeping them respectfully and reverently, the power of Christ. Life and the power of the Holy Spirit has potential to work in our lives in very meaningful ways. And to deny that or to be disrespectful toward it is to limit uh, in some fashion uh, the way that uh, the, the things the Lord will do or can do in our lives. Uh, he does mention here about the Lord chastening those who are, dis who are not discerning properly. Uh, but he doesn't say anything here about the Lord 
disowning them. Although he does suggest that if we won't be judged by the Lord, or if we won't judge ourselves, there is the potential uh, if we continue on the path and continue that direction of slipping back into the condemnation of the world. Do I have any uh, comments or questions on Paul's passage here in 1 Corinthians? Uh, Go ahead. We had a conversation between 33 and 34. Um, it appears as if um, the the amount of bread and uh, the the the, um, the drink that they were not that in the quantity as of me. What it seems to be that it was um, uh, it was more uh, let's see much more it was maybe maybe not a full uh, of food supper but that what we have but it seems as if it was not just a taste uh, you know a bite as it were. We're talking about bigger portions. The portion, yes. Yeah, this is, yeah, I think um, the best evidence that we have from the early church fathers, and remember, at the time the apostles, uh, you know, at the time the apostles had died and the next generation of Christians had come up, a lot of these practices had become more or less formalized. Uh, But there does seem to be strong evidence that the the thing we call communion, the taking of a bite of bread and the drinking of a small portion of juice, was actually a smaller part of a much bigger um, meal, that the early church practice was to have meals together at least once a week, followed by what we would term a worship service. So if you would imagine with no church buildings at present at that time, the believers would meet in one another's homes, right? So we, we read about the upper room. That was somebody's house. We read that when Peter got released miraculously from prison, where did he go? He went to John Mark's house, right? So um, these gatherings of the early Christians uh weren't in church buildings, they were at people's homes. And in, and in the Jewish culture and in the Middle East culture, if you went into somebody's home, they fed you. <laughs> you know, you would not invite people over to their house and not give them something to eat. So this was much more of a, I guess we, I, I mean, I kind of grew up in the South, so I grew up with the, the church dinners, you know, the fellowship dinners, I know we haven't done those things in a very long time, and maybe shame on us for not doing them, but, uh, you know, the, the big fellowship there after church Sunday or once a month or once a quarter, you know, that where the whole church would bring food in, in and, you know, they'd sing and they'd pray and they'd eat and preach and do all those things. That's more like what the early church experienced than 
what a typical church service is today. What we've done is we've taken that portion, that small portion of the bigger meal that they use to specifically remember and proclaim the Lord's death. And we've kind of cut that out and made it its own special event without the accompanying uh, meal that came with it. So, uh, it, 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 you know, some people want to put it down to just cultural changes, uh, societal changes, move, the move into church buildings, why Christians stop taking their meals together uh, and just made it a separate service or a separate event by itself. But, yeah, you're, you're right. The portions, uh, the quantity was, was much different because it was, it was a full meal. You went to... You went to John Mark's house not just to worship. You went there for supper. <laughs> That's where you got your evening meal. And so there would be, there'd be a time at the end of that meal where everybody would kind of quiet down and say, okay, we're going to take this piece of bread and we're going to take this cup and we're going to remember the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. At least that's my understanding. If someone else wants to add to that, please uh, feel free to do so. Does anyone um, have anything on that? Bishop, um, when I was growing up in the church in the early days, um, drinking and eating unworthily, um, it was not pointed out as a matter of attitude or how we came to the table um, respectfully or disrespectfully, but it was one of sin being in your life. And maybe there are others who are listening in um, could attest to that, um, you know, because communion was considered something very holy, and based on the scripture, we we ought to eat it without guilt. Um, so, you know, our lives had to be at a certain standard, so to speak. You and I, you and I were very similarly. <laughs> That's that's how it was preached. That's how it was taught as I was growing up. And I think there's I think there's a lot of value in that. You must come to the Lord's table with a clear conscience. And you know, I don't emphasize it every time we take communion, but I I try to get in there as often as I can. That if there's anything in your life or anything between you and the Lord, that. Uh, would you know sort of be a hindrance or an obstacle to your fellowship? Remember, and I know it's hard for us to understand because we we come from different cultures. To break bread with somebody in in the customs of the Jews or in the customs of the Middle Eastern people, even to this day, if you've ever if you have uh, friends that are Arab or or from the Middle East. Um, you can ask them about what it means culturally to break bread with somebody. Um, now, I know when I say that, I, you know, the first thought pops into my mind is, uh, you know, sort of the Italian uh, stereotype of we broke bread together, you know, but, but it carries that idea of a very powerful fellowship. It's a fellowship. When you sit at someone's table, you share their food. You're part of that family. You're part of that community. You're, 
You know, this, this you know, there were no McDonald's, there were no Burger Kings, no Taco Bells. They didn't have Chipotle on their speed dial. If you were traveling through a, a town or traveling through a, a city, uh, going somewhere, you know, yes, there were inns and there were places to pay for food, but if you couldn't afford that, you were dependent on somebody taking you in, right? If you were fortunate, you might have some family in the town, a cousin, a neighbor, uh, a friend, somebody in the town that would take you in and feed you and give you a place to sleep that night. Otherwise, you could be stuck sleeping out in the courtyards or out in the town squares or even outside the gates, which in some parts of the country could be a death sentence. If you were outside the gates, you were prey to thieves and robbers and you know all kinds of things. So it, this idea of breaking bread, of taking someone into your home, was was far more powerful than we associate with it today. You know, if I want to take Roger here out for lunch or dinner, we want to go, hey, Rod, you want to go get some prime rib? I mean, you know, it's meaningful to us because we like prime rib, but we don't attach the same weight to it that it carried in those days. So when we talk about coming to the Lord's table, we're coming into fellowship with not only Jesus, but with the family of Jesus. So clearly, if there is something sinful in us, if we're harboring some resentment, some bitterness, some grudge, if we're carrying on some affair, if we're, if we're behaving badly, um, we this is a great opportunity. And, and the only point I want to make that I think we need to I think we need to. Di- I, I think we need to make a different emphasis on. Uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, sister. But the way you described it sounds so similar to the way it was taught to me growing up. That people who weren't right with the word were to be excluded. They were to be. They they weren't worthy of the sacrifice. They were to be told, "No, you you can't come." And I would like. I, I don't think that's the way Christ intended us to present it. I think the communion meal is an invitation. Come and get right. Come and make peace with the Lord. Come and remove this obstacle. Repent of this. And, and I think that's the only way that, I, I think that's the emphasis I would change, is rather than say to people, you know what? I know you. I know you were outside smoking earlier. You can't. Ha- you, you, you're not part of this. I, I don't think that's the attitude that we should have. I think the attitude we should have is, you're invited into our family. You're invited into the family of God. Leave your sin outside. You know. I think you know that's the better way for us to approach it. But certainly, if someone is a sinner. An unbeliever, someone who doesn't accept the cross, doesn't believe in the resurrection, then certainly they have no business or place at the Lord's table. I, you know, I can't imagine what reason they'd want a place at the Lord's table. If you don't believe, what, what, <laughs> why bother? But if you're a believer and you're struggling with sin and you're struggling with a with, with a besetting sin. 
a weight of sin. The last thing I want to do is push you away and tell you, hey, you don't belong up here. You're not holy enough for us. And I think sometimes, even though they may not have intended it that way, that might have been the way it came across. And I think that's a bit, I think that can be very destructive to people who are struggling. If you're struggling with sin, we're here to help you. The whole point of the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is to welcome people in. Jesus said, this is the reason I'm giving my body. I'm giving my blood for the remission of your sin. You You don't have to be perfect. You can't, or let's be honest, <laughs> you don't have to be perfect because you can't be. If, you, if each one of us had to be completely perfect before we could taste of the bread and the juice, no one would, no one would be worthy of the table. Does that make any sense? Am I, am I, am I kind of close to what you're talking about there? Yes, yes, Bishop. Okay, anyone Bishop. else want to comment? Yes, sir. Um... If you look at the scripture also in that same text, what you're saying makes, um, well, when I was growing up, it was presented the same way. If you do something wrong, better don't come. But I have come to the the understanding that this is the place you should come because the scriptures say, examine yourself. And in that examination, well, you see where you fall short, so you can correct that that situation and uh, um, be worthy of coming to the table. So, uh, so I I I take that position these days. We in, back in the days, if you did, if you felt like you did a tear of a sin, you don't show up because you were told that that's not the place where you're eating and drinking unworthily. But I believe that. When we come together, right, and we do that examination, and the, the scripture even tells us we must tarry, or, or tarry one for another. You know, let's let's together get the examination right, so we can actually come to the table. And uh, I don't think that a, a sinner should should come until they come to Jesus and accept him as their savior. But the believer should certainly not stay away. But you do that examination and make the adjustment so they can be right. And that's my take. Amen. Amen. Well said, brother. Let me let me just add, and I think Reverend Hoga said it very well. It doesn't need any attitude, but I think just to reemphasize that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, and whatever state you're in, there's a place for you at the Lord's table. Uh, obviously, um, you know, we all have our own conscience to deal with. And if your conscience is troubling you and you feel grieved and you don't feel like you should partake, um, you know, I can respect that, but that's the, that should not be the condition every week. You should do something about that grieving conscience. You should make your peace with the Lord so that you can partake and so that you will partake. And and I, I've never been exclusionary. You've heard me say it in presenting communion. We, you know, During the pandemic, when the pandemic first started, I was trying to think of a way 
because we weren't gathering together, and to a large degree, we're still not. Uh, so I was, I was trying to think of a way to emphasize that we were still one body and still part of, uh, of the church, even though we weren't physically in proximity to each other. And of course, the first thing I thought of, well, we'll just take communion each Sunday in our homes. And that way we'll be reminding ourselves that even though we're not physically together, we're, we're still connected. We're still part of the body of Christ. And of course, when we started coming back together, when, when, the, when the restrictions began to ease and we began to come back together, um, I got a lot of positive comments because I really enjoy taking the communion every week. And so we've kind of more or less, we've, had, we've taken off for holidays and taken off for different kinds of services, but for more, more or less over the last 12 to 15 months, Communion has become part of our week worship, and I, and I really, I really enjoy that. I really, I really take uh, take a lot from it. It's it meaningful to me. Now, some would argue that if you do it every week, it becomes ritual. It becomes just sort of this thing you do, and you lose the appreciation of it. Maybe I, it hasn't been that way for me, and I. I but even if that were to be the case, I don't know that that's a good enough argument not to do it. Uh, the fact that you don't appreciate it anymore is more is your issue. I appreciate it very much, and I draw a lot of of of, of encouragement each Sunday from coming together with my Christian family, and not just preaching, and not just praying, and not just singing. But this act of worship itself, of taking his body and blood together, I, I, I feel like it should be a part as often as we can. You know, it, will, will, we, will we ever, are we going to become Catholics and have daily Mass? Probably not. But would it be so bad if we did, if we took it every day? I, uh, I, know, I know a lot of good Christians who take it every day at home. You know, they keep uh, their own... Uh, they keep their own cup, they keep their own bread, and every day as a family they take it, or, or you know, the, the Christians in the family take it. And I know Christians around the world who, for whatever reason, can't meet openly, can't meet in public because of persecution or because of other issues. Uh, this is a real powerful reminder that even if you're over here by yourself in some corner of the world, you're still part of the body of Jesus Christ. And I think that's what Paul is really, really driving at. All right, there's, there's a portion. Now, John does not record the Last Supper. And we're getting kind of low on time here, so I'm not going to read the passages. Uh, but you can read them. They're from John chapter 6. And uh, this is sort of John's interpretation, if you will, of... Uh, the foreshadowing of Jesus sort of prefiguring the Last Supper when he talks to the crowd. Do you remember the story of him feeding the 5,000? He comes back across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. The crowds follow him to see what the next sign he's going to do. He starts talking to them about uh, the manna that fell from heaven, talking to them about the sign that Moses gave 
starts talking about the bread of heaven, and then he starts talking about the bread of life. And then he says that he is the bread of life. And that if they want eternal life, they must eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And John, John reports that the crowd received this teaching very poorly. <laughs> they, did, they did not accept this, what Jesus was saying. Uh, you know, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? How can he give us his blood to drink? But Jesus was clearly making a connection here to what would come. When he would have his disciples on that last supper, he would bring this up again and talk about this body and blood. But in John's version, it's connected directly to eternal life. The body and blood of Christ is our salvation. It is our life. We are crucified with Christ, yet we live. But it's not us. It's Christ who lives in us. In the synoptic versions, it's about being accepted into the life of Christ, becoming united with Christ. In John's version, the emphasis was reversed. It's about Christ coming into you. So when we become Christians, we become part of the body of Christ, but also Christ's Spirit comes into us, and that becomes the source of our eternal life. So the supper does carry both meanings. And you'll notice when I bless the cup and the bread, I try to emphasize that point, that it's the life of Christ that's being renewed in us. Not just by taking it, but by taking it in faith, believing in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So there's a there's sort of the me becoming part of the body, and then there's body becoming part of me. And that's the basic difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the way they present the supper and the way John captures this teaching of Jesus before the Last Supper was actually inaugurated. Do I have any thoughts or comments there? And by the way, Jesus does emphasize after the crowds have departed, he does tell disciples that he the words speaking spiritual is not talking about literal cannibalism we, we we would you know it's fun we laugh about it now but one of the charges that was made against the early christians by the jews and by the romans was that they were cannibals because they claimed to be eating the body of christ and drinking his blood of course, the Jews didn't understand any better then uh, than the crowd that followed Jesus understood that he was speaking of in a spiritual sense, his, his life coming into us, not, not the physical elements of his body and blood. All right, so we'll close with a series of what does Holy Communion mean to us? What is its relevance to the church of today? So we understand that Holy Communion was the foundation of the early church's weekly celebration of the death and resurrection of Christ. So it was their, their sort of the cornerstone of their worship services, their gatherings, their assemblies. 
They assembled, you know, we assemble in pews, they assembled around a table. Holy Communion is an act of worship. By participation, we acknowledge and give thanks for our salvation by grace through faith. So it's one of the ways we worship God through Christ for the gift of salvation. Holy Communion is an act of witness. By participation, we testify, we proclaim, we demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there is an unbeliever present and they ask, why do you take that wafer? Why do you drink that cup? You're physically manifesting the gospel. This is the body. This is the blood. The body died for me. It took my, it took my place on the cross. It took my death into itself. The blood cleanses, washes, purges, forgives, pardons, remits, renews, regenerates. Just in the symbols alone, you have the whole message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Holy Communion is an act of fellowship. By participating, we demonstrate our union with Christ and all who are Christ. Holy Communion is an act of edification. By participating, we build up our faith and we encourage and build up the faith of others. And of course, Holy Communion is an act of faith. By participating, we affirm our intention to continue in faith in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. All right. Well, praise the Lord. Appreciate you being on the call with me tonight. Hope you were blessed. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you were informed. I hope I could clarify. If I didn't, if I wasn't able to clarify something for you, please don't hesitate to ask. I don't want any confusion when it comes to this or any other doctrine in the church. All right, let's pray together. Father, we give thanks for your word. We give thanks for the testimony of the scriptures and the testimony of communion. Thank you for this gift to the church to encourage us, to strengthen us, to bring uh, the, the beauty and the love and the mercy and the grace of your cross present to us each and every week. We ask your blood to be upon each one here tonight. Meet their needs. Watch over them. Keep them. Bring them back at the appointed times. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Have a good night. We'll talk with you next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. and on Wednesdays at 745 p.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.